I want to start this morning, we're, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to jump back into it, but I want to start uh, taking you to my childhood, um, which I, as a kid, spent a lot of time in my parents' Dodge Grand Caravan minivan. And we, uh, so one thing about me, when you play those games, it's like two truths and a lie, you know? One of my go-tos that I'll never be able to use anymore is that I've been to all 50 states. So we, uh, as a family, we never ate out. We always ate peanut butter and jelly. And we would take these trips where we'd just drive uh, to like five, 10 states every summer. And um, so it was amazing and awful, as you can imagine, just being in that minivan with my sisters and, and everything. And um, uh, anyway, we, uh, we went to Alaska and we drove to Alaska. Like it's possible to drive to Alaska, but it is quite a trek. And uh, my memory of that is uh, we, we went, our, our poor uh, minivan was never the same after that trip. But because the, in Alaska, when you go, you like go up through Canada and you loop around and um, hundreds of miles of that road is just gravel roads. Like, like the highways are just like gravel roads because who drives to Alaska, you know? Um, and so we'd go, and then Alaska freezes and thaws, freezes and thaws. So you get what's called frost heaves on, the, on these gravel highways that's basically like a speed bump. So when your dad is driving like 60, 70 miles per hour on the gravel road, and you're trying to sleep up against the window every now and then, you're just greeted with a, a head bash against the window. So for us as kids, you can imagine, like, this was, like, so annoying and so frustrating to get to Alaska on these terrible roads and to go there and everything. And then, um, uh, but then you get there. You get into Alaska, and you're seeing the, the, the country all around you, the countryside and everything, and it is breathtaking, like absolutely spectacular. And you, even your teenage self, begins to wonder, maybe this long, hard journey is actually worth it to see what we're seeing. I think that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is doing for us. I think he's taking us on this bumpy, windy, gravelly road to somewhere where we begin to see like this hope and this life and this beautiful picture of, um, of something that he's been wanting to show us but had to take us on this tough journey to get to. This morning, we've got a lot of gravel road at first, some frost heaves in there for sure, and then there's uh, a really beautiful vista that he opens up. We're getting close to the end of the book. And one of the things, if you, if you read through Ecclesiastes, it's, it's delightful. You, you get it all in like a, uh, maybe an hour or two or whatever, however long it takes you to read it. If you're trying to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really tricky because he begins to repeat himself and go back over territory he's already covered. So this morning what we're going to do, and, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going through these um, what we're calling deconstructed Proverbs where he's, he's giving us wisdom statements about how life really is, but you begin to see, okay, some of those things kind of line up with maybe the book of Proverbs, and other ones just feel like he's really grumpy and has given up on life. And so it's somewhere in between there is the journey we're on, and we're going to take a big chunk this morning. So we're starting in um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25. We're going to go all the way to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. And because this is the Word of God, I'm not going to skip anything, but um, there's definitely some sections we're going to take... Um, Really, really quickly, okay? Like my dad driving on an Alaskan highway. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you starting in uh, chapter 7, verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. 
And then in the first verse of chapter 8, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So in this first section that we're taking on, he kind of frames it um, like this. The beginning and the end of that is, um, I'm trying to figure out wisdom. And, and man, we've been on this journey with the preacher before, and he just keeps being like, you know what? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out wisdom here. Wisdom is good. And that by this point, we're just kind of like, come on, man. We've been on this road with you before. We know this isn't going to pan out. He's starting to realize it, but he's giving us this pursuit. And the, the, this first little pursuit, I think what he's trying to do in this, this section we're reading today, he's trying to get us to give up our faith. Just abandon your faith. The beautiful thing, though, is it's not necessarily our faith in God that he's trying to get us to abandon. It's, it's our faith in all of these other things that we put our hope and our trust and our faith. And maybe I'll find meaning in this. And he's beginning to say, give up your hope in this. The first one here is he's saying, abandon your faith in humanity. Like maybe you think that humanity, like we're, we're good and we're going to get somewhere good. But he's saying, give up. It's not going to work. The way he does it is a little shady, I'll admit, in, in, the, um, in the 21st century here. Because he's using the example of a woman who, uh, who ensnares a man, okay? And so you have these innocent men. I mean, men are awesome, right? And uh, innocent, godly, and then there's that woman that just snares him. And the poor guy has no choice, you know? So I read this and I'll admit, it makes me very uncomfortable, okay? Because, um, you know, we've lived through the Me Too movement and I, I, I get how tough this can be. Two ways of taking this. Don't worry, I'm going to resolve it all. Two ways of taking it. One is um, he might be going in the vein of Proverbs 5 through 7. If you read through that, Proverbs 5 through 7 is all about um, the seductive woman, an adulterous woman. And it's, it's warning like, hey, don't go down this path of lust. What it's, what it's really doing is it's saying, don't go down the path, path of lust because it leads you, it looks good, it looks pleasurable, but it leads you to a place of death. And he's warning against that. In that culture, the way you do that is you'd speak from a man's perspective and you talk about a woman um, seducing and there's that. I think it works equally well and is, is exactly what is trying to be conveyed if you reverse it as well. You could talk about the seductive, adulterous man enticing the woman. That also works both ways. So I think he might be talking about the dangers of lust. Now, it's also possible uh, that he's talking about uh, Proverbs 9. And Proverbs 9 uses the idea of the adulterous, seductive woman um, to talk about foolishness. So there's, there's lady wisdom that's, that's um, uh, commended to us in the book of Proverbs, follow lady wisdom and stay away from lady folly. Like that's the, the thing we're in. So Proverbs 9 uses the same imagery to talk about following foolishness. So he might be talking about lust. He might be talking about foolishness. Um, either way, it makes sense. And, and here's the thing too. It's also possible that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is a misogynist. Like some people read this and they're like, this dude's a misogynist. And I, I think we don't need to defend the preacher. So it's, it's possible. It might not be. Um, you settle your own mind on that. We don't have to defend it because what he's doing is he's going on a journey, right? He's, he's, he's processing. He said a whole lot of unorthodox things in this book where you're just like, I don't know if that's actually true. You know, he's talking about like, we don't even know if the soul goes up to heaven when we die. And we're like, well, I don't know. Have you read the Bible? Of course it does. You know, he's just processing out loud. And so regardless, either way, I think that what he's actually doing in the whole thing is he's saying like, man, stay away from foolishness, stay away from lust, stay away from all these things because if you're putting your faith in humanity, one way or the other, humanity is going to lead you down this path of brokenness. And here's the statement he makes that I, I find making a lot of sense of this whole thing. In verse 29, he says it like this, see, this alone I have found. So he's covered a lot of ground so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, and now he's sitting here saying, this is the only thing I've found. God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. So I think what he's saying here is, the only thing I've learned is that, man, like, 
God made us good, made, made us in his image, made us to be good, and we are bent. We're broken. And so he's, he's trying to figure this out. He, his human self, his human mind is trying to figure this out, and he's beginning to realize the world around me is just really broken. And also, though, like human beings in general, like we are bent. And I believe he's starting to give up on his, his ability, his perceived belief that he will be able to figure it out with his human brain. And I think he's saying, man, God made us upright, but we're all kind of bent. See, a few years ago, I had the, the pleasure of uh, learning that I needed glasses. I thought I had perfect vision. And then I realized like, oh boy, I can't read that eye chart. What's going on here? And I remember getting my glasses, putting them on and walking outside and looking at trees. And trees, I had uh, come to understand, were kind of blurry green shapes, right? And I put on the glasses, and it's like, my goodness, a tree looks way different than I thought it did. And I feel like Ecclesiastes, a lot of what he's doing is he's looking at the world around him. He's like, this is all blurry and bent and everything. And now, now he's beginning to recognize, well, actually, though, like, maybe it's my eyes. Like, maybe it's me who's looking at the world, and I see it as blurry and bent because... I myself am blurry and bent and broken. And I think that's exactly right because the world we live in, there's so much that's broken in the world all around us. Everything is bent. Everything is broken. But part of that, that's, that's objectively true, but part of it is that we ourselves and our hearts and our eyes and our minds are also bent. And so some of the brokenness and bentness that we experience is because we ourselves are that. So he's calling us here Abandon your faith in humanity. Man, humanity's great. Mr. Rogers loved all of you guys, and I do too. But, but, but we are not the answer to our problems. We will never get ourselves there. Now, here's another one that I think you guys are going to be happy to give up. Um, we're going to jump into chapter 8 here. Abandon faith in the government, all right? He's going to call us to respect the government, but abandon faith in it. So here he goes in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, uh, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. All right, so he's said, humanity is bent, like abandon your faith in humanity. But then we think, okay, but hang on though. Maybe though, if we can get a government over people, maybe we can get people to walk straight and, and not be these bent, broken people if we can just govern them accurately. And, um, and he basically is like, yeah, maybe. And he's pretty complimentary of government, right? Like, just do what the king says, you know? Just, like, stop challenging everything. Stop questioning everything. Just do the right thing, and no one's going to, like, it's going to be fine. There's a similar statement in Romans 13 about obey the governing authorities because, like, he's there to do good for you. And so just follow along and do, do the right thing, and you're going to be fine. Um, and, and he says, like, in that, in that call, there's these statements um, to kind of just— um, like, follow the right way, and uh, he says it here in verses 5 and 6, like, keep a command. The wise heart knows the proper time, the just way. There's a time and a way to do everything, so we can get along better with government if we just figure out the right way to do it. But here's the problem. The problem is that government is run by human beings, 
and human beings are bent and broken, right? That's the whole problem. It's no shocker by this point in Ecclesiastes. And so he's saying, like, stop your pursuit of power. So verses 8 through 10, like, we don't have power over the spirit. We don't have power over death. We, like, um, uh, wickedness can't deliver us. And so he's just saying, look, when man has power over man, humanity has power over humanity, they hurt each other. Like, that's just what we do. Now, the good old US of A, I love. And we, our system of government, I think, works better than anywhere else in the world because the whole thing is based on this really pessimistic assumption that human beings are terrible and should not be trusted, right? So we have uh, multiple branches of government, and the whole thing is like, hey, we're all so broken that we have to keep an eye on each other and really make it hard for anyone to do anything so that we don't destroy ourselves. Like, I think that's our system of government. And um, I think it, 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 on one hand, doesn't work well at all. On the other hand, it works better than anything else I've seen. Um, but the whole thing is just saying, Man, we're broken. The, the problem with us is I feel like we keep getting ourselves into this spot of like, yeah, but if we, if we just get the right person in the presidency, then we're going to be fine. And I think every lesson that we've ever learned from every bit of uh, art or movies or whatever is that anyone who gets power, their heart turns black and they get corrupted. All right, if you've read or, or watched The Lord of the Rings or The Rings of Power, you just know like power is this terrible thing that just destroys us. And so he's just saying, stop putting your faith in the government. Treat them well, respect them, but stop thinking that this is going to solve our problems. We think, you know, we could just get Christians in the power to make good Christians' decisions, but here's the problem. So the, the Crusades um, were this, like, terrible kind of a thing. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about the Crusades, but I read this book a while back that was sort of justifying the Crusades. And what it was doing is it was saying um, the, the Christians were, like, in Europe, and they're called in from, like, the Middle East and from Israel. Um, these pilgrims uh, to the Holy Land were being attacked. Um, Christian countries, like, living in this Middle East were um, being oppressed by Muslims. And so these Christians from Europe come in, and they're trying to, like, liberate and kind of reclaim the lands for those people. And, and what was happening is in these Middle Eastern countries, throughout the Crusades that lasted a long time, um, the Christians living under Muslim rule were being persecuted. And they're like, if you don't renounce your faith, then we're, we'll kill you or we'll enslave you. And it was terrible, right? So in some cases, the Christians were able to come in and liberate those countries, and now the Christians are in power. What do you think the Christians did when they were in power? They forced the Christians to renounce, or they, the Muslims, to renounce their faith or be enslaved or be killed. So it's just, the problem is the power, right? The problem is when we think, okay, human beings, we'll solve it. All we need is a good Christian uh, in there. No, abandon your faith in that. It's not going to do what we think it could do. Now, um, vote for Christians for sure. Uh, all I'm saying is uh, don't, put, don't put your hope and your faith in that. Um, the, the preacher is setting you straight, so as you step into your election cycle, just, just be pessimistic when you vote. That's all. I think I, if you do that, the preacher will be happy, okay? All right, now. He's going to invite us to abandon our faith in karma, okay? And basically, here's his point. Karma's not a thing, you guys. I'm so sorry. I know that we like the idea of it, but it's just not a thing. So, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And then verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. All right, so his complaint 
wicked people never get their due. People do terrible things, and they get blessed, and they live long, and they get rich, and they get to travel into outer space, and the rest of us are just stuck here on earth, and, um, and we're all poor, and all the terrible people are rich, and it just doesn't work the way we want. And here's the, here's the twist. It's not just that they are wicked and get away with it. It's that these people are wicked, and then they, they go in, in and out of the temple. These are like religious people, you know? They're wicked. Everybody knows it, but they're, they're prominent religious people just parading in and out of these holy church places, which is a, a little bit good for my soul in that, you know, hypocrisy is kind of a problem and a thing now. It's always been a problem. It's always been a thing. This is such an old, old book. And so he's just saying, um, what do we do with these people? Now, they, they go in and out of the city. And they're praised in the city, right? They've done these terrible things, but still people are praising them. Or um, you, you might have a footnote in your, in your Bible, as mine does. Um, or if you're reading the NASB or the New King James Version, it says that they were forgotten in the cities that they were in. And there's like a Hebrew spelling thing that I won't bore you with on which word is the right one. But if they're praised, it's like, okay, they're wicked, but people still love them. Like, so, man, justice, there's no karma there, right? Um, but also, if they... If they do awful things and then they're just forgotten, it's like, yeah, nobody cares about justice. No one cares enough to even hate them after they're gone. And nobody cares. Justice, uh, kar- karma itself is a sham. People do good things and they don't get what they need. And he's, and he's just saying all of it is vanity. The, the words Havel, it's just, it's enigmatic. It's meaningless. And at this, by this point, he's almost using it like a swear word, you know? He's just describing more and more things in this world. And he's like, ah, Havel, vanity. It's all just worthless. So by this point, if you're like me, you begin finding yourself getting frustrated with the preacher's approach because you're like, guy, you've been over this ground already. Like you already said that. You already found it to be meaningless. You're just spinning your wheels. And I think he's just getting us further and further to this point where he's saying, what I'm observing is not getting me anywhere. So in this section, he does something interesting. It's all about what he observes, right? It's all about what I, then I saw, then I looked, then I observed. And, and he's been talking about what he's been able to perceive with his senses. But look at what he says in the middle. This is in verses 12 and 13. And he talks, he begins to talk about like, I know. I know that it will be good for the righteous. I know that the wicked won't prosper. He's, he's in, the, in the midst of uh, framing his observations of how what I see in this life, everything, like there's no karma, everything uh, doesn't work out. He's reaching back into something that he knows on a deeper level, like a, like a confessional wisdom, perhaps. Maybe like wisdom that's handed down, maybe from the book of Proverbs or something, where he's saying, but here's the thing, even though I'm seeing all this injustice, and it looks like no one cares, I know deep down in my soul, I know from what uh, my, my ancestors have told me, from what the word of God tells me, I know that it's better to fear God. It's better to live a righteous life. And so he's, he's kind of laying those two things side by side, and he's saying, what I'm seeing and what I kind of know deep down aren't fitting all the way. It doesn't resolve the tension, but the tension is there. And we're beginning to see, I think, the wisdom of, okay, we look around and we, we trust our experiences and we're like, I will be the one that can figure this out. If I just think hard enough and if I look everywhere, I'm going to be able to figure this out. And I think he's beginning to see my, my sense perception, my eyes, my ears are not solving this for me. Perhaps I need to look outside of myself to something that I know, to something that I've been told that, that's bigger than me, and maybe that will begin to kind of put the pieces together. It doesn't, doesn't materialize immediately, but I think that's where we're headed in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. One more uh, thing to abandon faith in, and that is this. Abandon your faith in finding life apart from God. Um, so verses 15 to 17. Actually, some fairly uplifting things here. And I commend joy. 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in his seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he begins now, and he's just saying, like, I, like you, he, he applied his heart to this. You can just see, like, he's not just intellectual now. He's, like, throwing himself into it. And he's even saying, like, I can't even sleep at night. I'm just, like, consumed in this thing, and I'm trying to figure out. And he begins now to say, like, you know, a wise person will tell you they can figure this out. You'll always find, like, a, a pastor or an author or someone that's telling you how life should be. And he's just saying, I'm beginning to see, like, people are claiming to be wise, but, they, like, they're not going to be able to figure out what it is that God is doing in this earth. Like, it shouldn't be that big of a surprise to us to recognize, actually, life and the meaning of life and the interpretation of the events in my life, actually, that's kind of a mystery. And, and maybe I won't figure it out in this life. And maybe, maybe I was never supposed to be able to figure it out. I think that's where the preacher is beginning to lead us. Maybe our job is not to figure out, why did this happen to me, so that I can move on from there and live a happy life. Maybe he's saying, you know what, it's in God's hands. And he's already called us a little bit to, to trust God, right? Uh, there's a time for dancing and a time for mourning. And, and it's all in God's hands. And he makes it all beautiful in his time. So just trust him with what's going. And I, I think he's giving us this picture of, doesn't matter what the wise people say. doesn't matter what you think you can figure out. No one's going to figure this out. So let's move on. And what does he say to do in verse 15? Dude, someone has got a killer sound system on their car. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> I want that. The joke's on him because it will not make him happy in the end. So <laughs> we know he doesn't know that yet, but he's going to figure it out someday. <laughs> that was insane. Okay, anyway. Um, what does he say? He says in verse 15, he commends for us joy. Now look, he's, he's um, at first he was kind of like um, observing or whatever. Now he's beginning to like give us advice. Okay. I commend joy to you. Like I'm recommend, I've got a recommendation for you now. It's joy. And, and I want you to like eat and I want you to drink and I want you to be joyful because this goes with you in your toil. Sometimes I think we feel like, okay, when my, when my toil, my work, when the hard things in this life are done, then I'll be able to enjoy my life, right? Like retirement's going to be amazing. Some of you guys um, are experiencing that and you're like, yeah, it's, it's all right. Some of you are, are partying on that side of it. But it, it's not saying get done with the hard things in life. It's not like get done working hard and then you'll experience joy. He's saying eat, drink, be joyful, experience the good things because that goes with you in your toil. He's, he's giving us this invitation, this recommendation that we begin to enjoy God and the things um, that God allows us to do in the midst of the things that we're doing. So my question for you is we're going to pause here and, and there's more that we're going to read. But as we pause here, my question for you is, how, how are we doing with this? He's giving us this advice. He gives us advice. Eat, drink, be joyful. How are you guys doing with that? Are, are we doing this at all? Some of you are like, eh, if I'm honest, I'm kind of doing a little too well with the whole eating and drinking thing. I, I can resonate with that. But I think so many of us, and, and really all of us, we're caught up in these quests. I mean, we, we've been with the preacher, and we're like, yeah, if I could just get wise, if I, if I could just get enough money, um, if I could just achieve enough, then my life will fall into place, and it will be meaningful. And we've kind of resonated with him as he's saying, yeah, but it really doesn't satisfy. We're caught up in these quests, and we need to stop and, and hear his words of say, okay, let go of those things, and let's, let's enjoy the gifts that God gives us to enjoy right now. 
And some of you are like, there is literally nothing in my life that is worth enjoying right now. And all I can tell you is, set up a lunch meeting with an optimist. I am, I am available. I will hear all of the hard things in your life, and I will point out seven or eight things that are genuinely good things in your life that you're unable to see in your pessimism. And, and you need to take the, the optimist seriously in seeing the good things that are in your life. There's good things in all of our lives that are a gift from God, and we can just get so caught up in our journey, our quest, that we ignore the good things that God gives us. And so here's this invitation for us to hear uh, these words and to listen to it. Oh, I lied. There's one more thing to abandon faith in. Ready? Then, it, then it'll get good. Abandon faith in the formulas. And this is how he says it. Verses 9, uh, 1 through 3. All this I laid to heart, examining it at all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So again, a familiar theme. He said this so many times, but here he's saying it like there's no formula to like meaning and joy in life. So you might think that being like the righteous person or being the one who like sacrifices to the Lord or being the one who keeps yourself clean, you might think that that like gets you ahead and, and, and re- like do this and you'll be hashtag blessed and just like life is going to be amazing and you'll have all the things to post on Instagram about. And yet he's saying, yeah, it really doesn't matter. Be the righteous one. Be the one that sacrifices. Be the one that makes an oath. And really, it doesn't matter. The same thing happens to everybody. And, and so he's calling us away. Like, it's, it's not that these things are bad. We know that. It's not that those things are bad. It's saying, if you're doing them so that you'll earn God's favor, if you're do, doing them so that your life will suddenly turn around and be great, give that up because that's never going to pan out because your life is going to look much the same as everybody else's. Um, there's got to be a deeper reason, a deeper connection, a deep, deeper purpose in doing those things. He moves on in the second half of verse 3 to say it like this. Um, Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. See, he's saying it like the first few verses here. He's saying, uh, if you're trying to do the righteous and the good and whatever things to kind of get ahead, like it's never going to really satisfy and it's not going to get you ahead. And then here he's saying, and also we're all kind of awful anyways. So even if you think you're doing great in your righteousness and you're sacrificing and you're making oaths before the Lord, keep in mind that your heart's also just full of evil and we're all bent and and you're never doing as good as you think that you are. And so this whole thing, while you're living, you still kind of have a shot at it, but it's really not going to work out for you. So give up your faith in the formula of a spiritual life that's going to get you there. So now that we've abandoned faith in like pretty much everything, what can we have faith in? And here I think he's beginning to get us into some really fantastic territory that anticipates the end. And my slides are pessimistic. Nathan, can you just give me that last one? Thank you very much. They didn't want to go into the positive territory, but I am leading us into that. Don't worry, guys. This is the best that we can do in life. This is what he's going to tell us. And, and, and this is really, really beautiful, and it anticipates where the whole book ends. Go, he says. Now, here's a command. Go. Eat your bread with joy. 
and drink your wine with a merry heart. And let me just pause there for a second. Do you remember in chapter 2 where he, he talked about he pursued wine and pleasure and it didn't satisfy? And we were like, come on, man. Like we're sitting here eating a meal. He pulls the wine off the table and he's like, no, you can't have it. And we're like, okay. Now he's putting the wine back on the table for us. So thank you, preacher. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. He had to slip that in. <clears throat> because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge of wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So he's the preacher still. He can't break character completely. And so he still calls her life vain and enigmatic. And he still says like, yeah, and you're also going to still die and go into Sheol, the underworld, right? But in this, he's saying um, all of these beautiful things. Like go, eat, like be merry, drink. Like this is amazing. These are God's gifts to you. And he's using um, specific like wedding imagery in this whole thing. So he's talking about um, eating and drinking, wedding feast kind of things. He's talking about white clothes. Um, he's talking about like oil of like anointing, like all these things picture celebration and gladness. And there's this wedding celebration kind of motif to this whole thing that is drawing us into accept life, receive life, enjoy life as though it's a wedding feast. Like enjoy the good things that are in life. And I think we have this picture of Jesus where Jesus is like um, the opposite of that. Jesus was like the sad guy that, that was really serious. And he would like tell everybody serious things and whatever. And there was a lot of obviously heavy things in Jesus' life. But um, this one commentator, David Ford, he says, you can go read through the Gospels and Jesus literally ate, his, ate and drank his way all through the Gospels. You, you keep going through and you just see Jesus is eating and drinking with everybody. At a wedding, with his disciples, um, with the, the poor and outcast people, with tax collectors, with the Pharisees themselves. Again and again, Jesus is just eating and drinking and enjoying the good things in life with people while all this big, important, heavy, hard stuff is happening in the world around him. And so he's calling us to enjoy your life. Enjoy your life with your spouse. Like Life is still enigmatic and vain, and it still will be. Um, but enjoy your life because it's God's gift. It's all these things he pours into our life. So the, the invitation that we have here, um, the best thing we can do in life is to see, man, the things that God gives us are to be received as a gift from God. Uh, they really are. Like, and we have to step outside of ourselves sometimes to see them as a gift and to intentionally receive them. Um, this author, Dorothy Bass, uh, talks about the practice of receiving the day, like waking up and, and choosing, I'm going to receive this day as a gift from God. And she, she describes it like this. She says, at the heart of this practice is praise of the one who created the earth and separated the light from darkness. This one is still active in earth and all creatures, including ourselves. Every day, this one offers gifts, life, light, and hours in which to work and eat and love and rest. And he invites humankind to join in the ongoing work of caring for creation and all who dwell therein. And so she calls us to this practice of every day taking time to just anchor ourselves in this God who gives us gifts every day. That we're going to be prone to by bypass in our anxiety, in our stress, in our questing for more. We're, we're going to be prone. And so taking time to just spend time praying and asking God, like, Lord, help me to receive what you're giving me today. Lord, when, I, when I'm out in the sunlight and I'm experiencing the beauty and the goodness, help me to receive that. When, when I experience the rain that hopefully eventually comes, like, let me receive that as a gift from you. When I encounter these people that are often very problematic and hurtful to me, but also can be such a blessing, may I receive that as a gift for you. It's, it's a way of sort of setting our anchor in this God who is good and floods us every day with good things. And, and so give 
up the things that we're clinging to and grasping for and pursuing and, and begin to like offer those things to God and find that actually in, in the struggle, in the toil, we can receive those things back from the hands of God. I think that the hard thing with Ecclesiastes is he's showing us, let go of your grip on pleasure and wisdom and achievement and work and, and let go of your grip on all these things. And so we kind of feel like, what am I going to be left with? If I'm giving up all this stuff, what am I going to be left for, with? Just some like austere existence, like a, like a monk living like a hermit with a vow of silence and just everything's dreadful all the time, which is exactly what I imagine monasteries being like. And, and we're afraid that that's exactly where we're headed. But what we find is the things that we give up, if we stop worshiping them as though they're going to give us life and give meaning to our lives, if we let go and we stop worshiping them, we find that God gifts those things back to us. And I think wine is the perfect example. Wine, wine is, of course, super problematic. Alcohol is problematic, and, and it gets abused so often, and, and many of us have a really tough relationship with that. But in chapter 2, he said, maybe I'll find meaning in drinking and just pursuing pleasure. I'm just going to go for it. And he says, nope, that is not going to do it. And we have to let go of it, right? But here now, we, he hands it back to us again and says, this is a good gift of God. Enjoy it. Enjoy it as a good gift from God, but enjoy it in God's presence. Enjoy it as subservient to God who is ultimate. And he just hands us back sort of the stuff of the world. If we can, if we can stop our worship of the things of this world and the people of this world, we'll find we can receive back so much more these good and beautiful things that are here. I'm going to give you another dose of C.S. Lewis to, to close, okay? And C.S. Lewis, last week I, um, I, I quoted some from him. And this time I'm going to take you to the Chronicles of Narnia and to the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. And what's happening there is um, Aslan has come and he's defeated this last battle. The book's the last battle. And, um, and he's now taking them from the old Narnia into the new Narnia. And so it's kind of a picture of us leaving like the old earth and coming to the new heavens and the new earth that God's prepared for us. And, and look at how, how C.S. Lewis and the characters that he gives describe it. I think it's a beautiful picture of, of really this concept and I think ultimately where we're going to get with um, the book of Ecclesiastes and life itself. So here we go. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? They've been now placed in the new Narnia. I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? It would have to have been a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You couldn't get a blue like that, on, uh, like that blue on those mountains in our world. Those hills, said Lucy. The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind. Aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with its forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and, and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remember. And they're more, more, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up and come further in. Isn't that lovely? I feel like we should all just go home and read through all the Chronicles of Narnia to get to that point. It's this beautiful picture of um, what, what I think is actually a, an astute theological truth, which is this. We think that the stuff of this world, uh, we often are kind of taught that like 
God's going to burn it all, and it all doesn't matter, and let's just get rid of it all. It's problematic. Let's get rid of it. And there's probably some hints of that in Scripture, but the, the way that the Bible ends is so important. The Bible ends with a wedding feast, okay? So it's like Jesus coming, and he gets to marry us, a wedding feast. So we've seen that imagery in Ecclesiastes. But also what it ends with is not us being taken from the earth and going and flying off to heaven where we're going to float on clouds and play harps and all that stuff. What the way the Bible ends is with heaven coming to earth. And so, so John sees this new heavens and this new earth, and it says the dwelling place of God is now with man, and we get to live with him in this world sort of reshaped and remade and recreated in this beautiful picture. I don't know the mechanics of how it works out, but this picture of this earth that we, we love. Like, we, we love so many things about this world, but we experience it as blurry and broken, right, and bent, like we've been saying. But the, so many of the good things in this world, it's like when we get there, when we finally, everything's restored, we're going to find, oh, I enjoyed these things because they were a taste of the big picture, the big thing that God is actually giving us. And so when the preacher calls us away from all the stuff in the world, it's never going to fulfill you. And here he calls us, but here's what you got to do, is go and eat and drink and be joyful, like enjoy the gifts that God gives you. I think he's calling us to this bigger picture. First, set your eyes on Jesus. First, set your eyes on the big picture, and you're going to find that everything we do and everything we experience can be experienced in his presence, and there's so much good in that. Every relationship that we have is going to totally let us down and, and, and stomp on our hearts and make us feel awful at times. But also, every relationship we have has this potential for beauty and meaning. It's why when we lose a loved one, it, it hurts so bad because we know this piece of what we're losing, even though all of our relationships with everybody are complicated. And so there's this invitation. This is what Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. Um, whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's not about avoiding the stuff of this world. It's not about avoiding any these things. It's about saying, stop setting your heart on it and instead receive it as a gift and you're going to find that you can glorify God in that and that is where the meaning lies. Now he's going to circle a little bit more. So we have a couple more weeks in Ecclesiastes where he's kind of circling with a couple more sets of deconstructed Proverbs. Um, And then he gets to this lovely conclusion that this is the anticipation of. Um, But for me, it is just such a good, good reminder. Um, Life is wonderful and life is awful. Like both of those things are true, you know? And and where God's leading us is such a beautiful place. And I just, I would love to see us... um, taking these steps with the preacher of just, I mean, let's pursue, let's find meaning, and let's begin to see, maybe I'm not going to be able to figure this out all the way. Maybe I need some wisdom outside of myself to speak in. And I, I pray that these are the words that stick out. This, this chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, this 1 Corinthians 10, these, these um, reminders that, man, all these good things are gifts. Let's enjoy them in the presence of the Lord. Let everything kind of fade into its proper space. And let me, let me just pray for us as we um, ask the Lord to, to do that with us. Lord, thank you so much uh, for words like these. Ecclesiastes is such a fascinating book, and there's so many pieces of it that are hard to figure out and and that that really are kind of hard to hear and hard to bear. Thank you for these reminders, Lord, that you are good and that you're giving us good gifts all the time. And I think of this room and these people. Lord, I love them so much, and there's so much life and joy here. I pray for every one of us here who's hurting this morning that you would speak life into our hearts. I pray for everyone here who's numb this morning that you would begin to spark some life into us. Um, that we'd receive things that, that maybe we kind of have lost their luster. I pray that we'd receive them from you again as gifts. That you begin speaking to us and nudging us and comforting us in ways that we uh, don't expect. 
Lord, would you open new paths in this quest, in this journey? Would you speak old truths to us? And I just pray that our hearts would come alive, that we'd respond to you, um, that you'd thaw us out, Lord, and, and lead us on to, to experience and explore and just join you more and more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.